Good morning. It's kind of wimpy, folks. Kind of wimpy. Good morning. Well, what do you know? They're alive. I know how you feel, truthfully. This is the sixth lesson in a series entitled, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? I would suspect that you have already figured out that the answer to that is no. And there are some particulars in terms of terminology, in terms of structure, and so on, that uh, characterize and mark out a New Testament church. But it's about this stage of the game that I start getting a little bit nervous uh, in the sense that I fear that some might reach the conclusion that a New Testament church is one that just does the right things and says the right words and has the right terminology. And if that's the case, uh, that's not really uh, the essence of it. Because there are people uh, like the Pharisees in their own day who kept all of the rules, but they missed what it was all about because their hearts were wrong. So I thought this would be a good time to, uh, to focus on what I call the heart of the New Testament church and to focus on some of the heart attitudes that I believe are essential to the function of a New Testament church. So uh, let me just say the key to the New Testament church is not right terminology. It's not right rituals. It is a right heart and then with that heart, if we are obedient, that is good. So what I want to do is I want to look at the Old Testament and the New and, and just confirm what you already know, and that is, apart from the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work and the power of the Spirit of God, our hearts are not right. I was thinking of that song, you know, if your heart keeps right, well, there's only one way your heart's going to get right and keep right, and that's if God does it. And so we want to talk about the need for that and then the provision of the new heart that we see in the Scriptures through our Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit. And then I want to talk about three characteristics, faith, hope, and love. Those are only three of many characteristics that ought to describe the Christian, but it seems to me that those are three of the biggies. And I have a lot of texts that are going to go on the screen, but I'm going to confess to you. I've, I've been, you know I'm going to be teaching Hebrews next. It's going to be a little bit yet, but I'm going to teach Hebrews. And I keep circling the field. And so I found a great set of chapters in Hebrews, and I'm really going to lean on Hebrews in terms of faith, hope, and love, although you will find a number of Scripture texts for you to look at and to consider as you study the matter more fully. So let's talk about hearts revealed, and it, it seems to me the first place we want to go is, is to the heart of God. And I keep going back to, to that great text which I think is so foundational in Exodus chapter 34. God has manifested himself in, to some degree by the, the smoke and the fire and all the dramatic things, although nobody has actually seen God. But when it comes to the request of Moses, when he says, let me see your glory, it will not be a 
physical image that is so impressive as it is the character of God himself. What is most glorious about God is who God is and what he is like, and he reveals that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children, on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, God, to be righteous, needs to deal with sin in one of two ways, either by forgiving it or by judging it. Uh, And I guess you would say not either or because he forgives it by judging it in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But one is going to be on one side of that equation or the other. Either they are going to be on the forgiveness and grace side or because they have resisted God's provision, they are going to be on the judgment side. But my point is, God reveals that his glory is tied up, and the emphasis to me is on his grace uh, and his forgiveness. And then when you come to the New Testament, it's not really any different. John chapter 1, when we see uh, John introducing... The, uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in particular at verse 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory that was the glory of the Father is now manifest in the, in the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ in his physical body. And it is no wonder if we were to work our way uh, over to chapter 10 that a great portion of that is in the character of our Lord Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, the one who came to give his life for the sheep uh, so that they might have eternal life. So God has manifested himself to men, and he has manifested himself in terms of his compassion. Look at Luke, uh, just to skip down to Luke chapter 13, because in this text we see both the compassion of our Lord and the lack of compassion in terms of his adversaries, uh, the religious leaders. Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over, and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. That's the compassion. Now look at the lack of it. Verse 14. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed. Boy, didn't that sound like just classic bureaucracy? And, you know, God's got hours. You've got to come to the office when God's in. Uh, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered and said to him, you hypocrites... 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? In other words, your ox or your donkey is tied up, bound up. And out of compassion for your donkey, or at least a, a concern for the appreciation of your <laughs> investment, you're going to take that donkey and unloose that loose the donkey and take it to water. He said, this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Good grief, you don't let your donkey stay bound up a day. She's been bound up 18 years. What's wrong with this picture? And they do it on the Sabbath. So the point is, when we come to our Lord Jesus, he is the manifestation of compassion. And here are the rule keepers uh, who, who use the Sabbath in an inappropriate way as, as a way of attacking our Lord for doing good when they do it themselves, when they have self-interest at stake. Now, look at some other texts. Luke chapter 15 talks about the angels rejoicing when just one person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the attitude of heaven because it is the attitude of God. First Timothy 2. Paul says that we are to pray for all men everywhere because he desires for all men to be saved. Second uh, Peter chapter three verse nine says that he does not desire for all men for men to be under judgment, but that men might be saved. So God delights in salvation. He does not delight in judgment. He does it, but he doesn't take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. That is the character of our Lord. That is the character of the Father as well. That is his heart. Now, we come to men's hearts that are revealed. Look back at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And Man, you've got to say, this is really early, isn't it? Chapter 6, verse 5, and God says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Man, there isn't even a thread of hope in that. I mean, his thoughts are utterly wicked and absolutely consistently, persistently wicked. That is the state of man's heart in Genesis uh, early on in the game. Look at this text in Numbers chapter 15. Verses 38 through 40. Numbers chapter 15. Verses 38 through 40. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them, watch this, and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you have played the harlot. The law was given so that men would obey it because if they followed their heart, they would always do wrong. Remember what it says in the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. And could we not say, following out on this text, and they always 
were consistent, they did the wrong thing. That's the heart of man. So in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful more than anything else. That's the condition of our heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the Lord gives the law, but notice his immediate response. He says, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they've spoken by saying, we'll do it. That was a good thing to say. But notice then, he says in verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. So what God is saying is they were right to say we will obey God's word, but their heart is predisposed against it. They won't do that which they have committed to do. I'm reminded, by the way, of the tail end. Remember in Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And they said, Yeah, 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 we're with you. We're going to follow God. Joshua says, "Uh, I wouldn't be too quick to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do it. He says, No, actually, when you say that, you're you're just bringing judgment upon yourself. You won't do it because men's hearts are evil. Look in the New Testament to see the same thing. It is the heart of man that is the source of his problems. You remember that text in Mark chapter 7 where they've been uh, accusing Jesus of not following their traditions and he basically says, your traditions are just your excuse to do wrong. And they're actually your excuse to disobey the commands of God. So look with me uh, beginning at verse 17. And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house uh, and entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you too so uncomprehending? Do you not see that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? It isn't really about foods. Foods don't defile because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man That is what defiles him. In other words, you are defiled from the inside out, not the outside in. It's the heart of man that is wicked, and that results in wicked deeds. You could look at that text in in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. In that text, it takes the other side into account too, and it says that a good man out of his treasures brings forth that which is good. In other words, if our heart were good then the fruit would be good. But if our heart is wicked, then the fruit of that heart, the outworkings of that heart, are going to be uh, evil. Which leads us to this. Apart from a right heart toward God, all of the ritualistic things that we go through, even doing the right things, whether in the Old Testament it was keeping the Sabbath or tithing or, or bringing their offerings or whatever it was, it is worthless apart from a right heart with God. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, Because this people draws near with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists in tradition learned by rote. They are just going through the motions. No heart. 
And, and that's my fear. That's my fear when we talk about the New Testament church is that we could come to the conclusion, okay, what is the right term for leaders? Well, that's elders and, and deacons. Okay, so we don't have trustees and, and whatever. Okay. And, and what are the right forms? But apart from a heart which desires to, 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 to please God, a heart that is filled with love and gratitude, those things are just going to be rote, ritual, and we will be, in effect, dead. Remember, Jesus says to the church, you have a reputation for being alive, <laughs> but you're not, you're, to paraphrase, you're deader than a doornail. It's possible to be right and to take pride in being right and thinking you're doing everything well and actually be dead in terms of the fruit that is being produced. So let's talk about the the hearts that are promised and that God provides. There are a lot of texts, the text in Jeremiah, but let's look at at Ezekiel. That's, That's one of the beautiful texts, Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." Interestingly, you could look back at Deuteronomy about chapter 30 and he, where he's talking about what's going to happen and when he lays down the law the second time, he basically says, you're not going to keep it, but God is going to give you a new heart. He's going to circumcise your hearts so that you have a love to obey that word and here the prophet is picking up on that in Ezekiel and of course he is speaking about that which happens under the new covenant. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit, And uh, of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What is he saying? Paul is saying, Christ has come. Those of you who are believers in him are the fulfillment of those things of which Ezekiel and Jeremiah spoke. And that is... You have the new heart. It is not a heart of stone. It is a heart of flesh. It is not about tablets written on stone. It is about God's word written on your hearts. And it is on that basis that he can say in verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as a mirror is in a mirror the glory of the Lord being tra- are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. God is at work in those in whom he has placed a new heart. He is working through his Spirit, and he is conforming us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We are a new creation. 
Having been reconciled to God, we are a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is what happens when a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. New hearts are essential to a New Testament church. I was thinking about this. When you come to those texts, those those uh, books of the Bible that are talking about how the church should conduct itself, before it lays down, as it were, the, the, the principles by which we ought to live, it talks to us about having the right heart. So when you come to the book of Romans, and, and everybody would probably agree, chapter 12 is where the application really starts to come. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it talks about uh, giving our, ourselves as living sacrifices, but then it says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes our condition before we were saved and basically said we were the enemies of God. We didn't even know it, but we were the pawns of Satan and we hated God. It's also Romans chapter 5. We were enemies of God when he drew us to himself. So he says in chapter 4 now, we need to preserve the unity of the faith. We need to function together as a body with each one of us exercising our gifts. But folks, that won't happen if the old man and the old heart is prevailing in terms of our attitudes and our actions. And so he says, you did not learn Christ in this way. And so he talks about the new mind and the new style of life and the new attitude. So he who stole is to steal no more, but to labor with his hands to give. Folks, that is a revolutionary attitude. That's the kind of thing when I was involved in prison ministry. It's a wonderful text, not just for them, but for us. But what it says is, you have to have a changed heart. Now, you do not look at one who is weak. Somebody that's you're stronger than, whether it's by physical strength or by having a 45 in your hand, and you say, they're weak, I'm strong, I get what they have. Now, as a Christian, you go to work and you say, they're weak, I'm strong, they get what I have. That's a whole new heart. And the things that the Scriptures speak to us to do as a New Testament church will never happen apart from a new heart. And that's why I guess I'm leaning as I am on that, on that whole truth. Now, let's talk about the three characteristics of a new heart. And you'll notice, oh, I love PowerPoint because I got the slap point D in there and that's really where I'm going. But we'll pretend like we're working our way down and uh, let's just talk about these three elements, love, hope, and faith. I confess I reversed them, but Notice uh, the importance of love, especially in the text that was read to us in, in Romans. We are to, to have a sincere love, not a hypocritical love. We are to love that which is good and we are to hate that which is evil. And we are to have a sympathetic and a ministering heart so that we identify. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We have a heart for people who are in need. All of that plays itself out in verses 9 through 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul makes a very strong point that apart from that element of love, no matter how gifted you or I may be in our minds or other people's, no matter how gifted anyone is, apart from love, their gift is absolutely of no value. In fact, it's offensive 
apart from love. So love is an essential part of the ministry of the church because a great part of the ministry of the church has to do with spiritual gifts. That text in Galatians chapter 5 I may come back to because uh, it is a very, very uh, critical text. Let me just say this about it at this point. He says in Galatians 5, much what he says in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 13, and that is love is the fulfillment of the law. But he goes on and describes love as the fruit of the Spirit, and he says that we must walk in the Spirit rather than walk in the flesh if love is to characterize our, lo- our lives. So love is essential, but it doesn't come from within us. It comes from God as we abide in Him and His Spirit works through us. Hope is that future dimension, and we'll talk about it in the context of Hebrews, but it's that future dimension where hope realizes and believes and trusts that there is much that lies ahead and that most of what God has promised is going to come in terms of the blessings is going to come in the future. So we are always forward-looking rather than backward-looking. If you notice, old people, especially old people apart from faith, They have to talk about the good old days because they don't believe new days are coming. Talk to an older Christian and they can't wait for the new days because that's where their hope is directed. 1 Peter chapter 1, remember, says we are saved unto a living hope that is reserved for us as we are reserved and preserved for it. It is certain and secure. By the way... As you, as we were looking at John chapter 10, I went back and was looking at John chapter 6 because several times in, in John chapter 6, when he speaks about the future and eternal life, he says, and I will raise them on the last day. The Christians are going to die, most of us at least, everybody up to this point has, and unless you're going to be there at the rapture, Christians are going to die. It's the resurrection of our Lord and our future resurrection that gives us hope because our hope goes beyond the grave and the cemetery. Faith. I notice in Romans chapter 12 that he talks about spiritual gifts in the context of faith as each has received a measure of faith. So spiritual gifts cannot be operated without love and they cannot be operated without faith. And the reality is, if you want to know it, they can't be operated without hope either because oftentimes we may not see the immediate results of what God is doing uh, through those gifts. Now, can I get to Hebrews 11? That's really what I wanted to do anyway. So let's just, let's just go there. Here's something fascinating, and I know I've, 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 I confess to you that I've avoided teaching Hebrews as long as I could. But as, as age comes upon me, if I don't do it before too long, well, I'll be doing it from heaven. So it's probably a, a good time to, to deal with the book of Hebrews. You know that it is talking about the contrast between the new covenant and the old, and it is describing for us how much better things are with Christ and with the new covenant than they were in the old. So up through chapter 10, you're looking at all of these dimensions 
And you're laying down this contrast. The author is laying down this contrast between that which was part of the old covenant and that which is part of the new covenant. And the word that characterizes the new as related to the old is always better. Better. It's better than the old. All of that is true. But here's what I notice. You see the the kind of conclusion, for instance, in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, where it says, Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, since, since now we have a better priest, a better offering once for all, and now we have boldness and confidence to enter into the presence of God, uh, then he says, uh, we are to come with full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, that's sort of the, the, the in a sense, that's his initial conclusion to that contrast between old and new. That's when we come to chapter 11. Now, it's possible somebody may differ with me on this. I asked a good friend of mine, I uh, said, uh, did you, uh, when you uh, preach through Hebrews, do, do you have uh, tapes on that? He said, yeah, but you won't want them because I changed my mind. <laughs> so uh, I guess we won't go to those. But I, w- I want you to think about what happens in Hebrews chapter 11. The thing that is possible for us to do is to think about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant only in terms of contrast. To look at, at the Old Testament as describing that which is bad, when it really was good versus better, that which is bad, and, and therefore we sort of want to write the whole thing off. Notice what the writer does. He has gone through particular things related to the sacrifices and the priests and all of that, and he's always shown us how they were a shadow of what was to come and how our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of that of those shadows and how he is perfect. That's true. Now he goes back and he starts all over. Did, did, did you ever notice this? In chapter 11, he starts at the beginning in the Old Testament, and now he comes through the Old Testament in an entirely different way under the label of faith, right? So what we see is that the Old Testament, while it had all of those things that look forward, people in the Old Testament were saved by faith just like we are saved by faith. And people in the Old Testament who were believers had faith, hope, and love just as we are to have faith, hope, and love. So now it is not contrast, it is comparison that we see. Now I'm not trying to say that what we have in the New Testament isn't better. I'm saying that what they had as true believers was of the same kind in the sense that they had salvation by faith, they had hope, and they had love. So look at what, how this works. And, and, and I'm trying to, to, to make the point that these perspectives, these elements of a New Testament heart are essential for a New Testament church. Notice the first thing that he says is faith has to do with what you can't see. Is that not right? 
Faith has to do with what you cannot see. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then it goes on to say, For by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God, and that which is seen was made out of that which is not, which is invisible. Okay? So we believe in a God who cannot be seen. We believe, in, in effect, if you look at all the way through Hebrews, men could not see God, but they could hear him because God spoke. And so when men believed the word of God and when men obeyed the word of God, then they were exercising faith, even though they didn't see necessarily all of that which, which, which was ahead. And so you see these actions of people of faith uh, based, uh, related to that which is in, invisible. When we, uh, I'm going to deal more with this later, but let me just make an aside, uh, an application here in terms of the, the Lord's Supper and the meeting of the church. When you, in most churches, when you come to church to worship, you know, that is, whether you know what you're going to do or not, somebody's going to tell you. Because it's all there in the script. Now, we've got a general plan, but you and I both know that that plan oftentimes or sometimes doesn't get followed to the T. And, and you think about the things that happened this morning. You know, all we knew was that Leonard was going to start us and stop us. That's what we knew. Now, we knew, we assumed, because the elements are here, that we were going to observe the Lord's table, and we did. But, but do, you, do you see what I'm saying? When, when you come into, into what would be a traditional uh, time of worship, it's scripted, folks. It is scripted, and everybody knows. But if the head of the church is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is ruling and reigning over his church through his spirit, who is not visible, then do you not think it takes just a little bit of faith to come to a meeting and to say, I don't know who's going to speak today, but I believe God's going to lead. See, it takes faith to act when you can't see. And, and we could go on down that line a, a, a number of ways. But, but my point is, that's what faith is about. Faith is about believing and obeying God's word when you can't always see what the outcome of that will be or what the means for that uh, might be. So you see, it starts right at the beginning with Abel, goes to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Sarah, down through verse 12. Here's the thing I want you to see. If you think about faith and hope in terms of watertight compartments, you probably got it wrong. Because faith and hope are just kissing cousins. In fact, faith just sort of merges into hope. Maybe we could say it morphs into hope because look at what happens here at verse 13. All these died in faith. Now, I want you to think about that from this point on. Look how many times it talks about people dying or on their way to the grave. And and it says, all these died in faith without having received the promises. Now, Hold that in your mind and go down to verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So what he's saying now is, faith morphs into hope in the sense that 
people believed what God said, but they died. Now, if they died and they died in faith, then it must be that their hope is beyond death. In other words, faith is a resurrection faith, and that means we have hope for what God is going to do even after we die. For Verse 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to go back. (laughs) I think about Israel and Egypt, and they really wanted to, but they didn't. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So what it's saying is, even Old Testament saints understood that their faith was a faith in what God would do in some heavenly way and not just some earthly way. It would happen beyond death, not before death. Now, look at, the, at how he goes back again to Abraham. And he says, how did that work out? God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. God had told Abraham his hopes and promises rested on that son and he sent uh, Ishmael away. So everything rested on Isaac. So when Abraham was willing to sacrifice it, it says, verse 19, he considered or he reasoned that God is able to raise men even from the dead. In other words, when Abraham took his son on that mountain and lifted his hand with a knife, he believed God would resurrect that son. Now, God prevented him from taking Isaac's life, but he believed he would raise him from the dead. He had hope. His faith becomes hope. Now, look at uh, Jacob, verse 21. When he was dying, blessed his sons and worshipped, his, his faith had turned to hope. He knew his hope remained. Remember, he then said, take my bones with you when you go back uh, up into the land. Uh, and Joseph as well, I should say, in verse 22, with respect to his bones. Then you have Moses. Moses refuses the, the temporary pleasures and the possibilities of power and rule in Egypt because he would rather suffer ill treatment with the people of God and have the greater pleasures that God had promised for the future. So his was a hope-based. We talk about faith-based ministry. Hey, this is hope-based, which is not really contrary to faith. But it's saying, I am going to serve God knowing that he has a promise and a plan for the future that he will fulfill. Now, here's what's interesting especially in in the light of how faith is dealt with in the name-it-and-claim-it world. He now comes down uh, to uh, uh, to verse uh, 32, and he talks about the faithful. But I want you to notice the two categories. If you were to watch on certain television stations, it would seem like the faithful are the ones who are rich and famous and nothing ever goes wrong. And if they get sick, they get better instantly, you know, all all that stuff. These are just the the good things that are going to happen. Some of the faithful experienced the, the, if you would, the benefit, the victory uh, 
earthly victory of God's hand on their life. Verse 33, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, sounds like Daniel to me, quenched the power of fire, sounds like his friends to me, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. All of those things, victorious, you might say, victorious living. By faith. Now, in mid-sentence, he says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, to, they had to be faithful to enter into those blessings, and that meant being faithful by being persecuted and for some put to death. So it says... Uh, verse 36, others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Boy, I don't hear any of the name it and claim it folks talking about these verses. But this is people of faith, people of faith who suffered and died, many of them, because they believed, because they had hope. Faith becomes hope. And uh, notice now chapter uh, 12. After, after laying out this whole scenario of the Old Testament saints and of them living by faith, some of them being victorious, others uh, being victims, but all of them looking to the future, to eternity for the reward, not the present. So they lived by faith and they lived in hope. And in chapter 12, the writer basically says, okay, folks, time to get personal, time to get applicational. Look, he said, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to run this race with endurance, just like those people trusted God unto death and beyond death, you need to do that. And then he says sort of it as a side. And by the way, I talked about people being sawn asunder and, and all these kind of things. You know, who was it said the other day, but it's true, all our all fathers say this. You know, when a kid comes in, oh, you know, I hurt myself. And we basically say, I don't see any blood, no Band-Aid, right? And, and basically the writer's saying, I don't see any blood, I mean, you guys are whining and fussing. You're talking about falling back. And he said, I don't even see any blood. Look at what I just said. So here he's, he's urging the saints and he says, recognize that the difficulties and the discipline you were experiencing in your life are the hand of God and they manifest his love toward you. He loves you. It's a sign that he cares for you that these difficulties are coming to your life. Now, Get tough. Strengthen your knees. Stand up. Be a man, he says. Live out your life as you ought to live. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, chapter 13, faith, hope, love. Let love of the brethren, verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners. 
Let marriage be held in honor. Let your life be free from the love of money. Submit to those who are your leaders. All of this is talking about how one conducts themselves in the Christian life and in the context of the church and their relationships with one another. So I say, faith, hope, and love. They are not the only attitudes that are necessary, but they are some of the primary attitudes that ought to characterize the Christian and ought to characterize the church. So since I'm running out of time, let's go to the uh, conclusion. A New Testament church is not just a church that follows the rules, that has all the right forms. A New Testament church is the church that manifests the character, the power, and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. A New Testament church manifests Christ. They live out Christ. And we cannot do that without the mind of Christ. And faith, hope, and love are three of those fundamental elements. So New Testament heart is necessary for New Testament life. And if we had time, we'd go back to Galatians chapter 5. None of this is possible apart from the ministry of the Spirit of God. I'm agonizing right now as to whether to insert somewhere in the series, and I'm trying to find out where. But a New Testament church is a church in which the Spirit of God dwells, rules, empowers, and convicts and saves. You cannot have a New Testament church without the Spirit of God. You cannot be a part of the New Testament church unless the Spirit of God has worked in your heart and life and you have received the forgiveness of sins and become a child of His, with His Spirit dwelling within you. So that the church is a body of believers who have received new life, the forgiveness of their sins, and a new heart which loves God and loves others, that is filled with faith and filled with hope. Father, we thank You for uh, the way in which You have worked. We acknowledge Our hearts are desperately wicked. They are unfixable by any effort of our own. And thus, the things that we do to try and please you with hard hearts are not pleasing at all, but an offense. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to save us. Thank you for for, uh, baptizing us by your Spirit into the church and, uh, and dwelling within us in your spirit. Father, give us these things that characterize the new heart and help us to live them out as we seek to do it in a way that is obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.